Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 106 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 106, we are going to be talking about a handful of announcements uh, with regard to PW quizzing and some stuff therein. And then Scott and I are going to be talking through a list of stuff like, uh, I guess it's not philosophy stuff, but sort of practical applications of quizzing. So we're going to talk a little bit about the idea of removing the quote and finish and finish the next designations from the PNW uh, key verse list and some ideas around why that's been done and, you know, implications and effects thereof. We're going to be talking about a couple of uh, proposed new ideas, some of them wacky, some of them not so wacky. Um, and maybe touch on a little bit about how important in-person uh, practice is for in-person quiz meets. And the reason I bring this up is, you know, I, I observed a, a virtual pr quiz practice, a uh, virtual over Zoom, uh, I think it was yesterday uh, evening, and it went really well. And it, I, I didn't participate. I was just observing it. And I thought it was an, an interesting practice and a good practice. Uh, but I'm curious uh, to kind of dive into, you know, what is missing. And certainly there's a certain component that's missing when you do that. But other components are very positive. So what are the pros and cons thereof? So with all that said, uh, we'll just kind of dive into some quick announcements and then go into our topic. So the first thing is that the, um, for those of you who are in PNW quizzing, we are attempting to run our quiz season this year in tents. It will be intense, intense, as in, in an intent meet or intense set of meets. See, I can't say it differently. It sounds the same. We're intense, intense, intense. Um, so we're going to be at ABC uh, under some outdoor tents. Uh, there's going to be three of them. One large one that's going to be 40 feet by 20 feet, uh, which will be room one and theoretically have enough space for all of us to be able to congregate therein. And there's going to be two smaller... I, they're they're decagontal tweets, uh, uh, tweets, a uh, tents. Um, in other words, that they're basically 23 feet wide and a little bit shallower than that, like maybe 20 feet shallower. Sorry, not not shallower. So 20 feet by 23 feet, uh, and 20 feet three, uh, 23 is the width, and it ends up being that uh, even even though it seems kind of small, 23 by 20 ish. Uh, we set one of these small decagonal uh, tents up at ABC on Saturday, and it's surprisingly roomy in there. Uh, it was actually kind of nice, uh, you know, bigger than some of the smaller room twos and threes that we use in churches even. So uh, that's pretty cool. So anyway, Craig is going to be fiddling around with some of the heaters uh, so that we have heating uh, going in there. The, the heaters that we have right now um, look to be really awesome, but they're a, possibly a bit on the too tall side. Uh, so Craig is going to be um, fiddling around with those and seeing what he can uh, make of those. We are going to need an army of helpers, though, to do setup uh, because these tents are not simple trivial tents. These things are fairly industrial in terms of their heft and effort and, you know, piping and so forth, metal piping. And, and it's, it's, they're, they're pretty substantial. So we need a lot of people for a small tent. I think at minimum, we need six people to set it up. Probably m closer to eight to 10 would make it a little bit safer and easier uh, to set it up. Um, so, I mean, it definitely requires 
uh, people uh, to make it work. And I'm assuming the larger tent is going to require even more people. So uh, basically the plan at this point is that the meet is going to be Saturday all day and then Sunday afternoon during daylight hours. So if you happen to be in the vicinity or can make yourself in the vicinity of ABC on Friday during the day, I think the plan is we're going to meet up probably in the mid-morning sometime and spend the day setting everything up and uh, trialing it out and so forth. So uh, it's going to be a bit of an adventure. So in other news, there's also going to be a new registration system on the pnwquizzing.org website. It's currently not done. Um, but I'm working on it, um, I would say feverishly, but it's actually, there's a lot of distractions going on right now. So I am working on it. I'm hoping to have it done in the next couple of days. And then registration uh, deadline uh, is coming up very soon. It's actually less than two weeks away. It's Saturday, October 30th at 9 a.m. So that's why I'm hoping to have the new registration system done as soon as possible. Um, so, and uh, as a reminder, as per our leadership meeting at ABC during the scramble meet, fees are going to be $20 per meet per quizzer, excluding scramble, and there are no team fees. So similar to what we were doing, what, two years ago or whenever the pre-COVID times were, uh, that's the same sort of thing that we're doing. All right. So that's it for announcements. So let's move into our first topic. Um, so Scott, can you talk a little bit about, uh, the rationale and implications and effects from your perspective of removing quotes and finish designations from the keyverse list. Right. So to start off, PNW is decently rare in that we publish a keyverse list to our quizzers, which specifies the exact um, verses that can be used for keyverse questions during PNW meets. Not all districts do this. Um, other districts do various different things around the finish and quote questions. But in PNW, we publish a list to give quizzers an indication, not just an indication, to tell quizzers which verses will be used for those questions. But not only that, historically, for example, when I quizzed, which is further and further ago now, um, we not only provided the verses, but also any special designations. So if a verse was designated as a finish this, that meant that it could not be asked as a finish this in the next, or... Um, a finish the verse it so that by adding the type of designation it made it very clear to the quizzer what their what what question what i guess what verses could be asked for what types and not only that for finish this and finish this in the next we actually also published the how they started because in some verses there might be more than one valid way to start a finish this and so the rationale was if not all quizzers are going to memorize the whole material, we want to send them towards these verses. Um, and if we're going to send them to, towards these verses, we, we want to give them as much um, help is not the right word, but we want to make it not confusing and say, like, this is what will be asked of you. And then as time went on, we found a few things. One was that the keyverse questions keyverse questions. So when I talk about keyverse questions, I mean finish in quotes and all of the subtypes. We found that those types were getting dominated by very good quizzers, which crowded out um, the less experienced quizzers. And that wasn't the original intent behind specifying a keyverse list. It was for a quizzer that doesn't want to or can't yet memorize the whole material. 
um, give them some give them some certainty that there will be a certain number of questions a quiz asked on a certain um, set of verses. But as you can just see, that makes those questions relatively easy because you have such certainty around the verses and how they start and how many are going to be in a quiz. And so a lot of the top quizzers who maybe did know the whole material realized that they could study hard for these and jump very aggressively with pretty low risk. Um, and so they started kind of dominating those types. Add to that, whenever PNW traveled to an out-of-district meet, we found ourselves at a pretty um, large disadvantage on those keyverse questions because um, we were no longer using the PNW list. We were using a bigger list. And the amount that that list that we were using was different, you know, whether it was 1% different or 100% different, didn't really matter. Um, it, it led to PNW really struggling on those types in non-PNW beats. And so those were a couple of the reasons that we made some changes. One of the changes was we made our keyverse list a lot bigger, like like 30 to 50% bigger, I believe. Um, so there's just more verses in it, which means um, you might have the same level of certainty as a quizzer preparing, but there's a lot more to do, right? Um, we could also tell you that, hey, every interrogative question is going to come from the whole material, but that level of certainty doesn't really help you. And so that's kind of, we're trying to... Re- make it a little more difficult in that way. And then the other way is we removed all of the type designations. So as a quizzer, you have to look at the key verses, the key verse list and say, which of these do I think would be the best finish? This is or finish. This is in the next or um, finish these two verses. And you had to do that work yourself. We weren't telling you like, Oh, these are the 18 finish, um, finish these two verses or these are the 11 finish. This is. And so both of those were to make the type relatively less easy than it has been. Um, and I think there's just a lot of, there's a lot of moving pieces involved that you're not always sure if you're right about, right? Like, are we sure that the initial goal of providing a subset of the material to quizzers that aren't going to memorize the whole material, is that a good, good motivation? <laughs> um, because I think we've seen over time that anytime you make any question type easier, you invite um, more competition on it, and often from the best quizzers, which is usually the exact type of quizzer you don't want jumping on these um, if you're running a program, right? I think I've gone on for quite a bit. You want to jump in? No, I mean, I think you're saying a lot of the stuff I would say too. I mean, the historically, one thing to keep in mind is uh, P&W's KVL list tradition is you know, many, many decades old. So, I mean, this has been going on since easily the 90s. Um, Well, actually, definitely the 90s, possibly even further back in time than that. So it's, it's a very, very long tradition. However, the marking of the designations on the list between, quote, finish the verse, finish this, and, and, you know, quote, two verses and so forth, is only a very recent thing. Uh, it it uh, re- recent in the sense of like it's only been around for maybe the last what ten years or fifteen years or something like that. Which granted, you know, is a long uh, you know depending on your point of view could be considered a long time. But in terms of like the length of time the KVL has existed as a practice is actually a fairly short period of time. So yeah, I mean ultimately the idea 
of the KVL from my perspective, um, I'm, a, I've a, I'm of two minds of it. Like on one side, I would love, I love the idea of a KVL in the sense that it encourages quizzers to memorize more than zero when they're rookies and starting off because they can say, well, I'm daunted by the aspect of memorizing full material. I'll specialize on the KVL. That's something that's maybe a little bit more manageable. The worry that I have with the KVL is that it's like a goal that you know, on a series and typically humans tend to cluster around goals. So if you are below a goal, you're encouraged by the goal to kind of have a gravity force pulling you up to that goal. But on the flip side, there is an inverse gravity that kind of pulls you down to the goal, right? So essentially, if your goal is say, I'm going to memorize a hundred verses, if you are at 50, that goal is useful because it encourages you to keep going, right? But it probably doesn't have much of an impact more than just my goal is to memorize as, as many verses as I, as I can. Like I want to keep memorizing, you know, kind of stuff. Um, but when you get to, let's say 90 verses memorized, if your goal is a hundred, then you're, you're going to have this sort of boost of like energy of saying like, I'm, I'm really close, like just a little bit more effort and I, and I can get to 100, you know, kind of stuff. But then once you hit a hundred, it takes a Herculean effort to go from a hundred to 105, right? Cause you're like, well, I hit my goal. I'm, I'm, I'm satisfied there. Right. Um, it then requires another goal to be set. And that, and of course with the KVL, there's a goal line, but no additional alteration of that goal when you hit the KVL. And so ultimately in the, in the larger analysis of the thing, I suspect the KVL actually as, as published, a published KVL does more harm than good on a net net basis. But again, that's a theory. Right. And like, I, I don't think I would disagree with that because I know that when I quizzed my, my goal was always to get a 90. And so to do that, I wasn't in the business of um, making it easier for me to score. I was in the business of making it um, as low risk as possible, right? So I wanted to drive my, my probability of making an error as close to zero as I could. And so to do that, I identified the type where I could achieve that low level of risk, which ended up being the hardest type because I, I was willing to put in the time to drive that risk down. And I knew that because it was the hardest type, I just didn't have the same level of competition that I would have on other stuff. Um, but that was like a very specific motivation. If my motivation was to score a 45 average, I wouldn't touch reference questions and all I would do would be multiple answers, finish and quote questions because you only have to average what two less than two and a half of them a quiz and an error is fine and they're way easier. Um, and so I can totally see that motivation by quizzers to, to pick keepers questions when you know, especially as we've, we've, I guess the other thing that's in play is um, at the main rule book level. So non-PNW, like overarching of PNW, the minimums have gone up of finishes and quotes, which means there's even more of them every quiz. Yeah, indeed. Well, any other thoughts on this before we move on? I think a principle to always think about is what is the thing that you are trying to get to? And is this a thing that you should be trying to get to, right? <laughs> because if you're setting rules or policies, either at the complete rulebook level or just for your district, 
nothing happens in a vacuum. And so you may may find that you didn't get the outcome you thought you were going to get. <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. All right, well, let's move on to what could be a wacky idea, but it's a proposed new idea. And of course, this is a very... I don't know. It's kind of in the clouds thing. And once you hear this, don't freak out. This is not something that I think is being, I don't think it's being seriously considered right now, but it might be in the, in the future rules committee uh, at, at the internationals level, maybe over the course of this coming year, maybe, but I haven't really heard that much about it uh, beyond the idea, which is uh, for Finnish questions and quote questions that contain old Testament quotations, Uh, What would happen if we require the Old Testament book to be specified? Almost like, I imagine this would be almost like clarify your pronoun. It would be clarify your Old Testament book or like cite the Old Testament book. So, you know, you you would say something, I say, you know, on a a finish or a quote, you would quote the the material and then the quiz master would prompt you by saying Old Testament book or something like that, right? Old Testament reference or something. I don't think it, we would be t- asking about like chapter and verse, you know, reference, but rather just say like, that's from Isaiah, that's from Levitic- Leviticus or something, right? Um, so anyway, it's an interesting idea uh, for, you know, people who really love the Old Testament. Scott, what are your thoughts about that? So I think kind of as I might have had a nice segue at the end of my last, our last topic is you just, what is it that we're trying to do? Because Quizzing is very unique in that it optimizes to t- to teach you volume um, without – and it doesn't emphasize meaning, right? Because we can't test – we're not testing you on writing an essay or answering kind of a long-form question or even a trivia question. We're just asking you verbatim um, to give us the words back. And I think – I think that that's good, but it. Um, I think there definitely are. I guess my thoughts are not um, coalesced yet because I think that is good in that it's simple and you can do a really good job at that. And because of emphasizing to teach breadth, even if you're not specifically trying to teach meaning, I think you actually end up teaching meaning because of the full breadth and context that people memorize <laughs> um, that they might not get if you're te- trying to start by teaching meaning in kind of a scattershot kind of way. Um, but I think there are these little things that you could do if you wanted to either slide the scale away from slightly away from verbatim breadth to a little more meaning and context. And you might actually be getting a little more meaning and context without sacrificing any of the breadth. So this would be one area, I think changing finish these two and quote these two to accommodate more verses you know where you're testing quizzers on more contiguous material together where they have to know more context if you're this is why i love reference questions because it forces you to know that this occurs in two different chapters which means you know about this phrase and perhaps the same sort of message in two different places um I think cross-reference questions get at the same kind of thing because you are having to pull from different parts of the material um, to be correct. So I think all of these all of these things go together to further test contextual knowledge and greater meaning knowledge. Um, but I think if you were doing this for the Old Testament 
quotations, you definitely would have to publish the list of correct answers. Um, I'm trying to think of other parallels. I know some people have talked about correct pronunciations and do we want to publish a list of correct pronunciations? I don't think that that's necessary, but it it shows that the more that we want to specify a certain kind of material as correct, the more we might have to publish a list of what is correct, which would be an addition onto the base material, but it it basically becomes material itself. Yeah, so I'm of I'm of a couple of different opinions on this. Like I'll I'll sort of take it to an extreme to sort of illustrate my point. So instead of requiring Old Testament uh book identification, what if we said for certain words, not unique words, but a certain other set of words, whatever they those happen to be, and not a ton of them. Let's say uh, you know, 30 words or 40 words or some, some number of words scattered throughout the material, um, the, for those words that, that somebody deems to be, uh, spiritually significant, (laughs) quote unquote, uh, the quizzer needs to provide the original Greek word, right? Um, like that is kind of interesting, um, but I think it, it it goes beyond the scope of what quizzing is. And I think the point of quizzing, right? Um, I think having a quizzer specify the Old Testament book from which a, a quote passage is, is, you know, derived. I don't know that that is, you know, rote me- memorization from the material that we're studying. I think it's, I think it's something in addition and I think the in addition stuff is really valuable and useful to know, right? Like, like being able to look up a word, even if you don't, you know, speak Greek, you haven't studied Greek, but the sort of the inclination to say, I'm curious about what this, you know, word or a couple words uh, are in the original Greek. I'm going to look, look those up and look at definitions of those things and then kind of cross-reference them, them to other uh, places in the, in the, not just the material that's being memorized, but other places within the entire Bible and sort of, uh, well, New Testament in terms of Greek, and then try to understand uh, what, do the, what, what is a broader, deeper meaning of this particular word or phrase in context. Like, I think that's a very valuable thing to do but it's it's really beyond the scope i think and the and the mission of of quizzing as it currently stands sure um and i think i'd go back to like like what do you think would be the outcome um cuz i think um you'd be making these kinds of questions more slightly more difficult and adding in another piece of the material um that needs to accompany the material and i don't know I don't think I have a super strong feeling about it. I definitely never knew how to treat Old Testament quotations um, as, you know, like, should they be valid situation questions? Um, by the way, do you think a, a, a situation question should be valid if the quotation wasn't, like, spoken? Oh, yeah, the, I think it's, I think it's totally fine. That's the way I lean to, but I can see it being a little bit confusing to some people. I mean, yeah, I think I think it could be argued that it's slightly confusing. I think in terms of the rule book, I think it's totally fine. It's simply the rule book simply talks about it being a quotation, right? So, I mean, if it's a quotation of a quotation, uh, you know, to me, it, it, it's that seems totally fair uh, and and something that we can do. It depends how much you want to interpret, because I think it does say a direct quotation from scripture, which 
does it mean direct as opposed to an indirect quotation? Or did it mean direct in some other meaning? <laughs> right. Well, you know, um, the, the, the <laughs> yet another example of, of something that could, could be clarified a little bit more in the rulebook, I suppose. But in terms of the way it currently stands, where we consider it acceptable to use Old Testament quotes as uh, well, I think in general, uh, folks generally see Old Testament quotes as situational uh, prospects. Uh, I, I'm not. I'm not against that idea. Yep. All right. Well, let's move on to this idea. Uh, well, sort of inspired from a, an experience that I had uh, yesterday. I was watching a Zoom-based quiz practice, and uh, you know, so the the coach was on the the Zoom, and and she was reading questions, and then quizzers would jump, quote unquote. Uh, uh, by, uh, you know, typing in something into the chat window. Uh, basically, they were practicing on Zoom in much the same way that a virtual meet would would happen, right? So clearly, if a team is preparing for a virtual meet, and the virtual meet is using Zoom in the same, in the same way that we have traditionally used Zoom for virtual meets, then a virtual Zoom you know, practice is exactly what you want, right? Because that's what you want people experienced with. You want them to experience that that whole thing because that's what they are going to uh, have to go through in the actual virtual meet. But how important is it uh, in the context of preparing for an in-person quiz meet, you know, with, let's say, pads, not benches? Although I guess let's throw in benches as well, just to, just to see if there's a difference. How important is it to have some number of in-person with seats practice for an in-person quiz meet, right? So like clearly, and this is kind of the, 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 it's, it's sort of where do you draw the line in terms of, of the level of importance, because clearly there is more than 0% importance, right? But it's probably less than 50%. Like I would think that probably more the exercise of recognizing materials based on questions, jumping quote unquote um, on those questions, reciting the answers. I think that probably represents more than 50% of, of the total prep necessary and sort of like your seat positioning and speed of jumping at a district level probably represents, I don't know, 20, 30% of, of the prep, that kind of thing. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's sort of the kind, it kind, from my perspective, it kind of matters, but it's not probably that big of a deal. Now, if you move from, say, the district level to, say, the internationals level, then I think things change rather dramatically. I think the your seat uh, practice is is extraordinarily important because at that level, you know, your recall is more about how much have you reviewed because you've already got 100% you know material memorization, and it's really more around you know your around strategic, uh, speed controls, uh, more than anything else. But, um, so Scott, where do you land on this one? So let me talk about three things. The first off is that people often don't know what they need. Um, meaning you'll hear quizzers say, can you help me jump faster? Which does not mean physically faster. It means, um, can I, win more jumps and get more questions right, which often leads to their, your level of study and nothing to do with jumping, actually. Um, but another thing that people often don't know what they need is they don't know precisely when they're jumping what will trigger their light. 
And to me, this is a mark of a very good quizzer because first physical movement doesn't always trigger your light. Um, but that doesn't matter if you're just jumping at a specific syllable speed. All that matters is your ability to know exactly what will trigger your light at the speed that you want. Um, and I saw this with a very good quizzer who, if they were jumping on recognition, so not on a syllable count, but if they had to wait until they knew something, they would never win a jump. Because from first physical movement to triggering their light, it was very slow. Um, but at the high levels of quizzing, you're not jumping on recognition. You're jumping in a syllable count. And because of this, they knew exactly when to start moving their body to trigger their light at the specific moment that they wanted to and pair that with their study. And they won a ton of jumps and did very well. And so it is very valuable to know what physical movements are required to trigger your light and to know that reliably. So the second thing is what is a base level of comfortability with jumping? So I think that given an hour or even half an hour on pads or benches, and you have maybe 80 to 90% of the comfortability that you require to excel. I don't think it takes very long. I think that if you had never jumped on a given jump technology, um, you would be at a disadvantage because you don't know what physical movements are going to trigger your light reliably and consistently. But after 30 to 60 minutes, I think you will know very reliably, you should know very reliably. And at that point, additional practice um, isn't really going to help you a lot. So I don't think you need prolonged or even consistent practice once you have that base level of comfortability. Um, now, I will say that I completely agree with you that at the internationals level, prep is almost all about precise and consistent jumping. It is very little about the material. And so I would say consistent practice on the specific jump equipment that you'll be using for meet like internationals is very valuable, but only for that. And then that brings me to my last point, which is what is the point of practice? I think at the district level, the point of practice is fun and motivation and accountability. Because I know that in the week or two weeks between practices, I would like study um, but it was the day or two before practice where I really worked extra hard to memorize stuff because I knew that we would get to quiz and other people would see me quiz and I wanted to do well. And so I think that practices serve as that level of accountability, which means that they will serve that level of accountability regardless of the jump equipment you're using, whether it's virtual, it doesn't really matter at that point. <laughs> they are going to serve all of those purposes of fun, motivation, and accountability. And so it just matters, like, at what step of the process are you at, right? Have you never jumped on pads and you're going to a meet tomorrow? Well, like, try to find a way to get 30 minutes on pads, even if it's at the meet before. Um, if you're studying for internationals, um, you need to be working on benches to get your jump really precise. If you're just running a district uh, church team, I wouldn't fret at all that you can only do practices virtually, Um because it will serve as that motivation and accountability point that you really need it to. All right, cool. Well, let's move on to our last topic. Uh, this comes from a listener who proposed the idea in the uh, Inside Quizzing Slack channel. Uh, and that is the idea around uh, what if we were to have an alternate uh, question type distribution set or a, a set of alternate question type distribution sets that were, you know, predefined 
and you could then select one of them in championship quizzes. So the idea being that let's, let's say prelims, exactly the same as now, brackets, exactly the same as now, but in championships, you would have, let's say a three, uh, well, best, uh, first team to win two, right? So uh, first quiz happens. Okay, great. There's a team in first, second, and third place. Then what you do at the end of that quiz is the third place team gets to select the question type distribution for the next quiz. And the idea being that you could select exactly the official uh, distribution, or you could select one of some number of other sorts of distributions that that alter the weights of certain specialty types in different uh, different ways, right? I'm not sure it meant that you could just select, say, the types independent of each other, but rather you would have some sort of set of prepared, you know, here's one that favors multiple answers, here's one that favors quotes and finishes or whatever, right? And then you could pick one of these uh, distributions and so forth. So in that universe, what are some of the advantages and disadvantages? Does it contribute to the mission of quizzing? Um, is it a good idea? Um, it's certainly an interesting idea. I think, I think Scott, both you and I were intrigued by the idea and it, at least initially very positive to the idea, I think, right? Yeah. So I think the initial idea was still everything has to be valid as per the rule book, but just in those, which I believe the rule book, depending on the year specifies about 17 to 19 of those base questions. And so you might have one or two questions leeway or flexibility, but then there's also the A's and B's. So I think the proposal was um, among those questions that have some flexibility while still keeping it valid, right? So we're not talking about a scenario where someone could just pick a nine, finish the verse quiz. <laughs> um, would one team prefer choosing, you know, let's say that there are four questions that are flexible. Um, might they want to choose um, a couple specialties or all interrogatives or something else. Um, and I think it's a really interesting proposal because we are giving one team, and I don't think it has to be the, the team that finishes third necessarily, it, um, but that would that's a minor detail. Um, it is giving one team a different level of control that is strategic. And I think that that is very interesting. Um, because we see this in lots of sports, right? Like um, baseball teams can pick the size of their um, uh, field, right? Like the outfield dimension, specific dimensions. The infield has to always be the same, right? The pitchers mound to the home plate and all the bases. That's kind of like what's your valid question? Um, what's a valid quiz with it when it comes to question types? But maybe I don't want my left field line to be um, 330 feet. I want it to be 365 feet, right? That's might be one team picking an extra multiple answer or a quote versus a couple interrogative questions. I think that's really interesting because you're going to make those decisions based off of what your strengths are, but that also means that you have to be prepared for other teams doing the exact same thing, right? Which basically creates an incentive for you to not for your um, skills to not be pointy, meaning um, really, really good at some types and really bad at other types because that can be exploited. It might work out in your favor occasionally, but it also might work out not in your favor. And I think that's what we saw when internationals went back to assigned seat bonuses. It was seeking to reduce the incentive to heavily 
specialize in question types because assigned seat bonuses might mean that your quote specialist gets stuck with a chapter verse reference and has absolutely no clue. Um, and that's an extra thing that teams have to deal with when they're preparing. And I think that same dynamic would be brought in here, which I think would be really cool, right? One team might decide to, they might decide they want to over-specialize and hope that they they are the team that gets to select. And then they kind of have to win that quiz, right? That they've given themselves this extra advantage in. But that's like a strategic decision that you get to make during prep and then when it comes up. And I don't know. I like those things because it, it adds a lot more fun. It adds a lot more strategy. And I don't think it it introduces this massive change. Yeah, I agree. I don't think it's a massive change. Um I think the interesting thing about it, like, like it's intriguing to me from a, from a strategic perspective. And I like things that we can add into quizzing that increase the strategery of quizzing that don't jeopardize mission. And I don't think this would jeopardize mission in, in, in a lot of respects. I think it actually potentially encourages mission because if somebody were to take this too far and, and what does too far mean exactly? I, 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 I think that's pretty subjective at this point, but let's say a team decided, you know what, we're going to really, really emphasize multiple answers in our practices. And then when they get into finals, they get third place and then they then select the multiple answer heavy question set distribution, right? Um, And then that gives them a distinct advantage on that quiz, right? The problem is, I think, you you still have to get to championships, right? And so like you have to be really good to get to championships in the first place. And then once you're there, you have to basically get third place, <laughs> you know, in order to in order to be able to leverage the strategery aspect of this. So like I think the impact of doing something like this is extremely small. Uh, because I don't think it would really, and, and I don't mean that as a bad thing, right? I think it, the impact would be very small and it's a good thing that it would be very small. Like it, it doesn't, it doesn't have a, a tremendous impact on it. Like it sort of adds a strategic element an, an additional strategic element, an additional, not, I don't know that it would actually influence prep so much. It would more influence self-awareness, I think more than anything. Right. Um, And that could be a really good thing. The idea of saying like, you know, everybody continue to prep in exactly the same way that they are prepping now. But if we happen to find ourselves in championships and we happen to find ourselves as the third place team in championships, then we can, uh, you know, if we can rely on our self-awareness to then maybe add a small advantage to us, you know, in the one upcoming quiz uh, that's before us. Right. And so in that regard, like, I think it's a, it's a small change that could be very interesting. Yeah. I I wouldn't want to, this is an implementation detail, but I wouldn't want it to be awarded to the third place team because I don't like building in an incentive to lose in any quiz. This is why I really like the competitive format in finals where if you take two third places you're eliminated because if i'm a team and i take a third place in the first quiz and then in the second quiz we're late in the quiz and i am kind of fighting for second um i might have an incentive to actually lose um to help a team win that hadn't already won a quiz in finals 
right? Right, um, right. And, and to me, that's, I, that's a bad incentive where you, you are incentivized to help a different team. This is also why I think the incentives can get weird when there's two teams from the same district in a quiz um, or, the, or two teams from the same church. Um, it's just you, you might get incentives that aren't in the best interests of everybody um, that can be controlled by two of the teams, and I don't like that. And so I wouldn't – I kind of would rather have it be where – each team gets a chance to choose, and then um, it's randomly assigned um, which of them gets to choose for quiz one and quiz two and quiz three or something something like that. Ooh, that's interesting. So the idea being that these are – that's interesting. So basically each team gets one choice. It goes into a hat, and the quiz is one, two, or, and then possibly three. Uh, are selected based on a, a random sampling of the the three choices that are there. Right. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, the only downside to that is, I mean, that could tremendously, well, would it tremendously? So what you're saying is these sets also are not, because what you're saying about the sets is a little bit different than what I understood. I understood that the min-max ranges would change but there would still be random miss randomosity within those ranges and what you're saying is no the ranges stay the same it's just that you get to specify the you know a specific number of certain question types within those ranges um kind of okay basically i mean in essence you would be presented with say three different question sets and you could pick um, with types um, in them and you could pick which ones you want oh so you would even know like question number 12 is going to be a finish the verse so i wouldn't go that far so you would be presented okay. like it will have x number of all of these and then the order is going to be completely random still and you won't know that this type might come up on um a toss-up on question five and this one on a bonus on question 17 all you know that is the quiz will still be valid but you and Really, at the end of the day, if you filter out what's common between them, you're choosing three to five question types um, um, that you want, right? Because everything else has to stay the same to be valid. But it could be like I'm choosing the one MA, one CR, two interrogative batch versus the one quote, one finish, one CBR, and one interrogative batch. Interesting. Interesting. And see, yeah, that's not how I interpreted it. I interpreted it as as more like, you know, instead of three to five multiple answers, it's two to three multiple answers or whatever. Right. Um, And these were sort of predefined ranges that are set up. So that's very interesting. Um, And here's another scenario. This is this was not the proposal, but it's one I just thought of is each team could be given a card or like one usage. And it is at any point point in the quiz where all three teams are jumping on a question they can um say the type that they want to happen on the very next question and it has to be a type that's um able to happen right um but you can just say like oh question 14 is coming up i want this one to be a chapter verse reference or uh, you have to say like a reference question um And that then, seems almost too powerful, though, right? Because, I mean, like, we have this rule of, like, there's no talking after the type is announced because we want to avoid the sort of, you know, the strategy that might go into play in terms of, like, you jump on this one, I'm going to sit kind of stuff. But what you're proposing basically is the is a 180 from that, right? Like, it would be 
we can do all kinds of strategy and then say, I want that particular type, right? Right. And you can build in any sorts of guardrails you want, right? You, like you can say it can't happen after a timeout and it can't hap- there can't be a timeout after it, you know, or my idea was it definitely has to happen when all three teams are in. It can't happen before a bonus. Um, but you could decide whatever you think still makes it fun and interesting but doesn't provide undue advantage to one team, right? Um, hmm. But it could be 19 and 20 are coming up and you know there's going to be one interrogative and one quote. And maybe you want one of them to happen on 19. And you can use your card to make that happen. And I think that could yeah. be really interesting. The quiz still has to stay valid. It's all the same types. You just get this small little influence over when the type that was always going to happen, but when it's specifically going to happen. Interesting. I can see the logistics behind implementing that for the quiz master and answer judge being monumental. <laughs> and for the, the programmer of the question set system. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, who cares about that guy? But... <laughs> You know, oh man, that would be, that would definitely be entertaining. Um, (laughs) Hmm. All right. Well, any of, any other thoughts on this one? I don't think so. All right. Well, and on that bombshell, uh, we should bid y'all adieu, um, or adieu. I can't pronounce it correctly. Anyway, um, please don't throw anything at me for my terrible French pronunciation. Uh, but on the bombshell of that revelation, I want to make sure everybody rem- is reminded that they should contact us with any kind of questions, concerns, comments, fears, negative doubts, paranoia, uh, disagreements in particular. Please email us at iq at cbqz.org. And you can follow us on Twitter. Our account is at Inside Quizzing. And you can also chat with us in near real time on the Bible Quizzing uh, Slack channel, Inside Quizzing. And with that, I will say thank you all for listening and thank you, Scott. Thanks very much, everyone. And thank you, Griffin. Griffin.